it's not an if you build it, they will come scenario anymore. It's now how can I be strategic and grow this like it was a startup? Like, how did I start out my my domestic e-com? Okay, that's how I have to think about my international e-com. So there's definitely more of like a starting out and how do you how do I be strategic perspective? What will e-commerce look like when the pandemic is over? What does fast shipping mean anymore? And does anyone actually like returns? That's some of what we're going to figure out. This is BoxCast, a conversation about current events, culture, and e-commerce logistics from Pitney Bowes. Hey, I'd like to introduce uh, Stacy Schaefer from our solution consulting team. Uh, Stacy, welcome. Welcome on the podcast. Thank you, VJ. I am very excited to be here and talking with you today. It's, this is going to be exciting. I, I'm been looking forward to this conversation because this is an area where a lot of retailers are trying to figure things out. And I, I feel like we've got some really interesting data points and some perspectives or anecdotes to share with, with our audience. Um, so let's start with an intro to you and your role in the organization. Could you talk a little bit about... Um, what you do, how you work with clients, and 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 kind of the the experiences you've got. Sure. So I've worked in cross border or international e commerce for about ten years, and most of that time has been spent helping U.S. retailers and some global retailers as well figure out their international strategy, identify and understand how do they want to ship to customers in different countries? How should they approach them and think about them? And so my role now is quite similar to that where I talk with retailers in the US and in Europe and help them identify what areas of the world might make sense for them to expand into, what Pitney Bowes offerings from a shipping logistics and technical integration standpoint we can offer in order to help them achieve their goals that they have as an organization. 10 years in cross-border is a long time because this, this industry is not that old, right? Cross-border e-commerce. So we, Pitney Bowes, have been in cross-border for about that long, right? Um, the big change that we had or the big step forward that we took was acquiring a company called Border Free, who was kind of the first mover in this space um, back in, you were just telling me this before the, the show, uh, 2015, so about six years ago, we acquired Border Free, and that really set our company on the path to being at kind of at the forefront of cross-border enablement. So you've you've been on board since the beginning of that journey with Border Free, and have seen had a front row seat to the, the kind of the maturation of cross-border e-commerce in the industry, and and obviously with our clients. Can you talk a little bit about? What, what do you see different now from what you saw at, at the start of our cross-border journey in terms of what consumers or clients expect, what they, the types of questions they ask, their types of the requirements they're, they're asking for? Yeah, I'd say in the, in the beginning, so you know, 10 years ago, 2012 timeframe, it was still very new for a U.S. retailer department store to ship internationally. There were some doing it already. And they, a lot of the time, relied on a partner to do everything for them. Um, they didn't have the the people within their internal organizations that knew what to do to ship internationally. They kind of thought of it as literally just shipping in the U.S. and then shipping everywhere else. So I'd say 
a lot of companies, it was just new for them. Um, They're very hesitant as to the risk that it would take to open up their, their websites to international traffic. I mean, there's a lot of large retailers that were concerned literally just about, you know, if I open up my site to different countries, what does that mean from a traffic standpoint, from a, a hacking standpoint? Whereas now I'd say there's a bit more experience that everyone in the retail industry has had, they understand the opportunity that there is internationally for the most part. And now they're just at differing levels of, you know, where should we focus? What should we do? Do we have the capabilities to ship to these countries? And when I say these countries, that's also been a big change actually as well, where um, a couple of years ago, China was such a huge focus. Um, I think when you see the, you know, the number of people, the number of shoppers there, it's just crazy. The numbers are just so huge. And then especially when singles day started getting huge, you know, people, it's like a billion dollars a second. I don't know, some huge numbers. I mean, I think a lot of U.S. retailers just saw that and their eyes were like huge as the opportunity. Whereas I don't hear about China as much anymore because of challenges that are that are there and setbacks that a lot of retailers or a couple different retailers um, based in the U.S., even large ones have had either opening in China, launching into China. So I think the focus now is more where can I where can I go to get my bank you know bang for my buck and have give a good experience to, to shoppers um, and and hit kind of easier markets than um, than China for example. I want to touch on and kind of continue on the thread you, you just brought up, which is what is what's the pragmatic approach? Where the, where's the low hanging fruit? What are the right markets? for a given merchant at a given stage of their maturity. And so what we've done, and, and Stacey, you've been instrumental in the development of this, which is we've started to establish, based on our experience, your experience and, and others in the organization, what is a maturity model for cross-border? Where do you, do you generally see where we've seen retailers start out on the journey? How, how do they sort of accidentally find themselves uh, as a cross-border e-commerce operator? to a very purposeful, strategic approach to cross-border. So we're both looking at this visually. So for, for the listeners, I'll, I'll just describe it. And uh, we'll go stage by stage. And I'd love to hear your kind of commentary on what are the examples of behaviors uh, and needs that come up with merchants at each stage of this maturity model, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So let's start off with with the accident. We've got a couple of stages to start out. First, we, we kind of call the accidental cross-border merchant. Uh, and then after that comes the passive cross-border merchant. Let's talk about these two together a bit because it's, it's low maturity. You're not intentionally doing anything. You're kind of tripping over cross-border. Can you talk a little bit about what's the mindset of retailers at this really early stage of maturity on cross-border? Yeah, for sure. So I'd say there's a lot of retailers that sit here. And what that means is maybe they're on an e-commerce platform that allows them to ship internationally or their U.S. carrier maybe allows them to ship internationally. And so they're like, hey, you know, I've heard a lot about international. There's some people inquiring about me shipping to them. So why don't I just enable it? You know, it might not be the best experience, but at least I'm giving them the access to my products. And then we'll we'll kind of see where it goes from there. And I don't really need to do that much. So usually it's like an, an unpaid, so it's called duties and taxes delivered unpaid shipping experience where the consumer might have to pay extra once a, the product gets to them at the border. 
but you know it's it's usually a postal type of shipping option so it's lower cost for the consumer not hard to manage for the retailer and so they can kind of be passive about having this capability available for their consumers it's a great point and part of the drawbacks would you say of of being in this stage is one you know you know it's kind of hard to forecast because you're not being intentional about it what kind of sales you can get but also you're setting the bar fairly low in terms of the customer experience, right? You're not looking to bring in, attract, and retain, bring back customers that want great tracking, for example, because you're using a pure postal option maybe, or you may have customer service inquiries come in because somebody got charged uh, duty and taxes at the local postal operator and we're upset about it, right? And you're, and you're sort of treading water on expectations. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And I I think you brought up a good point of a lot of times, and maybe this goes into the next step also, but a lot of times what drives a retailer across this journey of cross-border maturity is customer feedback. So what we'll hear a lot of when we're talking to retailers is they'll say, you know, my customer service agents are getting all these inquiries about people complaining that they had to pay extra when 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 our packages got to them. You know, it might start out as one or two a month, but then if it gets up to, you know, 10, 20 a month, they start paying attention to, hey, there's actually these customers that I could serve better. And, and you know, one or two emails to a CEO later, and then you get a little bit more intentional about what you want to do with your international strategy. Intentional strategy. What does that typically look like? What is kind of, this is truly dipping your toe in the water on purpose rather than yeah. by accident. Um, what, what kind of, so you mentioned DDU Inco terms before, which is, you know, you're not dealing with duties before. What do you move into now once you become intentional and you start taking this a bit more seriously? Yeah, I'd say it's thinking about the customer experience a little bit more. So knowing that and learn and learning as well. So a lot of times in that transition, the retailer just, you, you don't have people on your team that are experienced in international e-commerce or that necessarily, you know, they, they don't live internationally, so they don't know about things like duty and tax and having to pay that when something crosses the border. So they're learning as they go. And I'd say it's knowing that you can give a customer a better experience. So the some of the easiest things, and I'd say the like trademarks at this stage are figuring out that you can do duties and taxes as a quote at checkout and, or, you know, as a an amount that a customer can pay at checkout so that they then can receive the package and not have to pay anything extra. So giving them that option or, you know, giving that to them um, as a required way to, for them to receive sh- the shipment is, is helpful in a lot of ways, especially for those higher AOV or average order value type of retailers where to, you know, sell someone a $500 dress and then expect them to pay duties and taxes at the door. Like it's just not a good experience for that. So that has kind of also expanded of a little bit higher value Merchants are now also, if you're kind of more intentional about your strategy, you'll also start to see your sales increase because you're giving customers a better experience. And just be frank, this is easier now than it, it has been even just a few years ago, right? Oh, like yeah. Enabling DDP and turning on uh, some sort of quoting engine at checkout. Those are things that are... I don't know, I mean, it could be rolled in bundled with your e-com platform in some cases. Right? Yeah, there's a, even like like a Shopify, they're rolling out, you know, duties and taxes as a calculation as part of their checkout. 
Um, we've got an API that clients can utilize in order to know their duties and taxes. So I think people sometimes are just, not, I don't want to say uned, uneducated, but they just don't, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So I don't think people realize how easy it can be now to actually give that good customer experience. So yeah, there's either through e-commerce platforms or there's tons of partners nowadays that offer not only the duty and tax quote, but then the shipping option as well. And it gets you started to think about, okay, I don't, maybe I don't need to just use my U.S. domestic carrier internationally. Maybe I can start to find specific international carriers as well. Yep. Yep. And so I want to talk about kind of moving from this stage of intentional to what we call the entrepreneurial stage, right? And there's a, there's a kind of a big change that happens here. A little bit kind of get your you to articulate it, but part of, I think what happens here is you're moving beyond, okay, we ship to Canada and here's how much you should expect it costs to we're opening a .ca site. Yeah. Right. And, and how does that, that change happen? Yeah. So a lot of times when you're just shipping to Canada, it's literally, you know, the e-commerce head of e-com, the head of logistics, like, Hey, we should ship to Canada or, Hey, we should ship somewhere. And then they just start doing it. When there's more investment and interest from usually leadership at a retailer, that's when you start getting it as part of your strategy of, okay, how can we expand internationally? How can we target into specific countries? How can we do things like, you know, localizing your front end where you have, it's not just a shipping issue anymore. It's not just a shipping matter. It's now strategy. It's now how do you give a localized experience to a consumer? Do you want to invest in a .ca? Do you need to? Um, do you want to have to open up a legal entity in these different countries? Or is there an option where you can work with a provider here in the U.S. that gives you that full end-to-end, what we call end-to-end capability, where it's you know localizing, giving customers local currency, giving them local payment options. So it's just conversations of you can either basically from a strategy standpoint, start thinking about, okay, how do I want to actually address this as an addressable market? Like it's not an, if you build it, they will come scenario anymore. It's now, how can I be strategic and grow this? Like it was a startup. Like how did I start out my, my domestic e-com? Okay. That's how I have to think about my international e-com. So there's definitely more of like a starting out and how do you, how do I have to be strategic perspective? If you can even remember why you start out. Yeah, yeah. You have to go to the Wayback Machine or something for that, I think. Right. <laughs> right. And uh, there's a little bit of like handing over the keys to the castle a bit. Now, I'd love to kind of hear you talk about it, which is there, there's a concept of merchant of record and exporter of record. There's two, so there's two concepts, right? And it's a question of how much risk you want to own internally versus give to a provider. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two models, merchant of record and exported record, where you're outsourcing one or both of those capacities or, or functions. Yeah. So a lot of times a retailer will know that they want to strategically market into new countries. You know, they want to, they're willing and have budget to spend in Europe and in Canada and in, and in Australia and maybe in Hong Kong or something. But what their the business isn't super comfortable with is the risk associated with something like that. Like, okay, how is my international, what is, what are international fraud rates? How am I going to know that something is international fraud when I can't read the language of the address? How do I know what I can and can't ship into different countries? So there's just a lot of inherent risk in shipping internationally. And that's why over the course of what, 10 years now, it's still not like every single retailer you talk to is already shipping internationally and already doing an amazing job at it because there is this risk. 
So there's companies that you can partner with, and Pitney Bowes, of course, happens to be one of them. Um, but no, there's companies that you can work with where you can actually rely on them to be your merchant of record. And so what that means is they'll be the one actually taking the payment for you from international customers. So you hear about like WeChat Pay in China. You don't need to add to your roadmap to add WeChat Pay. You don't need to add to your headcount to have international fraud experts. You can rely on this third-party company to take payment for you, make sure there's no fraud, and then receive money in USD. Like maybe your international or your in-house systems can't take different currencies. But now with this company as your merchant of record, you don't have to worry about that. You can just worry about USD payments. So from a merchant of record standpoint, the risk it removes typically is payment, you know, payment method risk, fraud risk, and risk in like currency exchange rate as well. And then there's what's called an exporter of record. So that's more on like the physical movement of the goods side. So what that means is that this other company, again, you can partner with another company to literally be responsible for the export. So they're the one that will tell you and consult with you, hopefully, about, hey, you know, cosmetic retailer, know that in to Australia, you can't sell certain SPF versions or there are some specific rules into, I want to say like the Middle East about the makeup that you're allowed to sell. So you can work with a partner that would tell you basically like what you can and can't ship into different countries. They'll also be the ones to look up the different harmonization system codes into different countries so that you as an organization don't have to be responsible for that. You'd made a point when we were talking about this maybe last week or the week before, which is you were saying that there were types of com- companies or retailers that have teams that could do some of this work on the compliance side, it, depending on where they kind of manufacture the goods or if they manufacture their own goods versus reselling uh, wholesalers' goods. You talk a little bit about what are the types of teams that handle the requirements that would make you decide whether to insource or outsource export or record? Yeah, that's a good a good point. So a lot of times, it's if you're a retailer that is manufacturing your own goods, maybe you're uh, manufacturing it in another country, importing it into the U.S., or manufacturing it into the U.S., a lot of times you will know a bit more about the details of the country of origin of your product and you know the ingredients in it. You have an easier time of knowing the HS code typically. So sometimes if you're the direct creator of the product, you're the direct brand, direct vertical, it's a little bit easier for you to know what types of products you're shipping. But at the same time, you still have to have that export compliance. So it's not just the import compliance about what can you ship into the U.S. It's what can leave the U.S. and then also what can enter into different countries. So we'll talk to some, um, like there's a hair care retailer that we talked to recently that they have you know, entities in lots of different countries. They've got an export compliance person working on this um, international expansion project that they had. They had their in-house logistics person kind of getting up to speed on all the different carriers that they need to use. Um, so they decided that they, you know, they were comfortable being the exporter of record for their own goods. Uh, they were just looking for someone to help them ship to different countries. So I think it, it depends on how much you're willing to invest into the infrastructure of your internal business and the time you're willing to take. Because we've also talked to companies where they're like more like department stores or maybe they're reselling like other private label goods. Um, and they're like, you know, it takes two full people's jobs to fill out the customs paperwork in order for us to know what we're able to ship. And so that's the kind of conversations I like to have because you're able to then free up those 
people's jobs to do something of more value than looking up what an HS code should be and filling out paperwork. So it's kind of cool when you're able to, you know, know that you can provide value and kind of advise someone like, hey, there's a better way to do this. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, and it's, it's nice to be able to pick and choose the pieces you want to insource versus yeah. outsource, right? Which is kind of where, where I wanted to zoom out for a second. And like, we've been describing a maturity model that kind of looks like a curve, right? And the, the y-axis on the curve, the vertical axis is how much do you want to own versus outsource, right? And what are the components that are required as part of cross-border, sophisticated cross-border strategy? And it's at this point, like this stage that we're talking about now, this entrepreneurial mode where you're taking a really programmatic approach, international and you're deciding, do I have dedicated resources? Do I need to outsource this function? Right. And then at this point, the curve starts to kind of turn back in the other direction and starts to insource some of the things that you were outsourcing. And so the next two stages, I'll just kind of group them together. We call it expanding and optimizing, right? So expanding is in, you might want to expand to more markets or add more carriers. And optimizing is in, you've got tweaks that you can make in certain markets or in your digital platform that are going to improve conversions over time or customer retention over time or improve gross margin um, on your international business. So can you talk a little bit about where are the knobs and levers here? Once you, like, you've outsourced uh, everything at some point and now you're starting to bring pieces and parts back in, you're much more sophisticated and have an international presence. What are those switches and buttons you can press to, to continuously improve your international it, form. It's a good point because it, it is kind of a funny curve in that it doubles back on itself, right? So like you start out, you kind of are just, you know, you're shipping internationally and it is what it is. And then you're like, oh shoot, like I should really invest in this. And then you invest to a certain point where so you're, you're giving this th- a third party maybe, or you're outsourcing a lot of what you're doing because you just don't have the time and resources to do it yourself. And then you grow to a certain size and that's usually the trigger is you grow to a certain size or maybe in certain markets you have, you know, achieved scale or economies of scale in one way or another, or you're hiring expertise, you you know, you realize you can hire just one, you know, maybe one person from an international e-commerce perspective that has the experience that you're looking for and they can kind of know the insights and how to do certain things. So, the fun, yeah. So it's a funny thing where you start out with, you know, basically all you think about is shipping, maybe, and then you have a, a third party that works with you for everything, and now you come and you start peeling back and saying, okay, maybe there's different vendors that I can work with. So maybe it's I've I've gotten so big in Canada that I feel like I could get my own shipping contract here, or maybe I even want to, you know, open up a facility in Canada and ship direct from there. Maybe you got huge in Europe and you're realizing if you opened up a facility in the Netherlands and you can ship direct from there and you can get overnight shipping to people. So a lot of it depends on, you know, the geography, but it's always, it's well typically a volume conversation of when you're, you've achieved some sort of a scale in either a given market or overall, you can, usually the first thing you'll see is figuring out logistics on your own in certain markets of, okay, is there a carrier that can have a better strategy than just grouping it all together? Um, Or is there direct API integrations that I can do because I want to have, again, I want to have maybe a local presence somewhere. I want to open up a store in Canada. Okay, can I fulfill from that store in Canada? Um, And so then it's using maybe a third party for just some translation on the website or just some localization of currencies and that sort of thing. 
and so yeah, so it, it really is is a funny journey in that it's, or I guess, a model and that it it does kind of double back on itself. Of you do things piecemeal, you outsource it, and then a lot of times you pick up what you want to get piecemealed again if you have the capabilities. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I, we we've just described possibly like a strange animal. <laughs> like a, like a brontosaurus or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was going to say Loch Ness Monster, but something like that. Right. Right. Uh, so a it, camel it's, maybe it's like this, looking back it, at its hump. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a very introspective camel <laughs> is what we're describing. And, and so, you know, the, the big thing that, that we've tried to do in, in terms of our strategy is offer something at each of these stages, right? Especially once you start taking cross-border as a serious ongoing uh, driver of your strategy, then like, how do you kind of a la carte the, the right solution at the right time, right? So that we we can stay flexible throughout that journey, throughout that maturity. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really cool evolution that we've had over the past, I guess, six years since the border free acquisition where our go-to-market has changed as a business because the market itself has changed of... How, you know, how do you support retailers in, in where they are in their own maturity models? And that's kind of changed as the world has changed as well. So there are a lot of, you know, the huge, huge retailers that have global presence everywhere. They're still working with us because we've got really great you know, shipping opportunities and carriers into specific countries. And then maybe they're working with us because we're also really good at HS codes. So it's like that piecemeal thing of it's a, a nice problem to have when you figure out you know, which supplier do I want to work with for, or which vendor I should say, do I want to work, work with for different components? And it's also helpful when you can kind of sometimes work with the same supplier, same vendor for a few different things too. This has been great, Stacey. I think there's been a tremendous amount of information that we've, we've kind of gone through and reviewed and, and some great insight that you've, you've given. From your experience. <laughs> it's weird. 10 years, <laughs> 10, 10 years. Yeah, it feels weird to say that, but, but it's like, that's the the industry has come up in that time, right? That's when the industry is has really come into its own, and now it's it's reaching a stage where some of these things are easy to do, and some of them are very variable and volatile. And um, and I think th- this conversation is a great example of how you know th- th- there are partners out there like Pitney Bowes, others that they can help navigate. Uh, navigate, help you navigate through that that landscape. Thank you very much for the time, Stacy. We'll we'll. Uh, provide some links in the show notes to more information. And I'm sure if anyone <laughs> wants to work with us, they will be talking to you at some point in that conversation. So more, more from Stacey to come. Thanks for tuning in.